Welcome to Insight, the insurance news podcast hosted by me, Andrew Silcox. In this week's edition of Insight, we're dishing out some good advice. I haven't read it, but I'm pretty sure the quality of advice review interim report doesn't start with, if you do something bad, make sure there's someone else around to blame. In a classic call that news moment, academics say disaster claims handling may not be up to code. And finally, always read the words COVID-19 to the tune of 80s smash hit, Come On Eileen. What that has to do with a new premium funding code of practice, I can't explain, but your life will never be the same again. Hello, everyone. This week, I'm joined by senior journalist Benice Han, deputy editor Wendy Pugh, editor John Deeks, and chairman Terry McMullen. Hello, Benice. Hello, Andrew. You've swapped financials for statistics. What are your parties like? Oh, no, you don't want to know, Andrew. <laughs> Sorry. Good morning, Wendy. Good morning, Andrew. How fast did you have to read that interim report? Well, I'm still reading it, as a matter of fact. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, John. Hello. Am I too harsh on the Melbourne Law School academics? Oh, I think they did a pretty good job, but um, we'll, t- we'll talk more about that later. And lastly, good morning, Terry. Good morning. Seems like it's been a rough week for the industry. Yeah, it has been a bit. Well, it's been a rough couple of years, in fact. But <laughs> so some of these things come to little peaks every now and again. Yes. Well, speaking of the last couple of years, we waited ages. And now the Quality of Advice Review has released a key interim report. Wendy, you're still reading through it. But what are the key recommendations that you've found so far? Yeah, this this is a consultation paper, so they're kind of proposals that, you know, are still a work in progress, I guess. But what the reviewer, Mel- Michelle Levy, has put forward is uh, are some pretty significant changes for advice, and they aim to make things simpler and uh, reduce costs, the report says. So in one of the things, there's always been this confusion over what's general advice and what's personal advice. And she says, well, let's expand the definition of personal advice and no longer have general advice regulated as a financial service. So that anything that's not actually captured by the expanded personal advice definition would be covered by general consumer protections. And she also proposes there would be a new obligation to provide good advice, which would encapture um, a range of existing duties, and in particular, the, the best interest duty. Um, so she says this is sort of a more uh, sort of simpler but uh, effective way forward. So we'll have to see what people make of it, I guess. Are we any closer to finding out what's likely to happen with broker commissions, John, as part of this? No, we're not. As you say, this review is looking at conflicted remuneration and whether the exemption for general advice should continue, and that will have an impact on broker commissions. But this proposal paper doesn't tackle that issue at all. It says that they're still looking at data from general insurers, and they're going to carry on consulting on this issue. There won't be another paper on it, but there will be this further consultation. And then I guess we have to wait for the final report, which is in December, to find out exactly what the reviewer thinks about that whole commission's issue. Now, some Melbourne researchers have talked about claims black holes after natural catastrophes, John. What's this about? Yes, that's right. So this is a team of researchers from the Melbourne Law School, and they interviewed 30 people uh, who had put in a claim after a natural disaster. 
and the comments were pretty unpleasant. Some people even said dealing with insurers was more traumatic than the disaster itself. The main, the main problems were down to delays and issues with communication. People talked about having to sort of explain their story to eight different people and just not getting responses. Now, it's very important to say that all of the people that were interviewed had already contacted Financial Rights Legal Centre. So these were people who we knew or the researchers knew had a problem with their claim in the first place. So it's certainly not representative of the general experience. However, there are some lessons from it, I think. And and uh, the researchers point out that there's a bit of a gap between what people expect after a massive natural catastrophe and what they actually get when it comes to the claims process. Because, I mean, obviously, insurers pay their claims and they'll do everything they can to help people. But at the same time, when you've got 230,000 claims like we've got after the, the floods earlier this year, inevitably there are problems. And, and that's because, you know, insurers don't have hundreds of people sitting around waiting for a catastrophe to happen. They have to suddenly scale up. And at the moment, that's even harder because there's not a lot of people looking for work. There's very high employment at the moment, as we know. So you do get these issues with communication and delays because, you know, as we've said as well, there's not many spare builders hanging around waiting to do the, the work that insurers need. So where this all leaves us, I don't know, but it, it could be that we, that people just need to realise that putting in a claim after a huge natural catastrophe will require a lot of patients, even if you've got the right insurance in place. And of course, what would brokers say? They would say, use a broker because we will help you through the, the claims process and make all of this a lot easier. Is there a way to manage claimants' expectations, Terry, when there are so many claims and so many challenges? Oh, you know, we've been we've been talking about this for as as God, forever. There are always going to be large scale catastrophes and and it's tough. Um, but I still think that compared with, with say, 30 years ago, the, the industry has become much more adept at communicating with individual claimants and to the wider world. But, you know, frustration and uncertainty are part and parcel of, of, of the recovery process, no matter how good we are. And I really can't see how we can change that. Maybe we can do more to alert people to the fact that even if you're properly insured, that doesn't mean the recovery process will ever be simple and, and easy. It's not a two-week experience. You know, and I'd suggest some insurers, not all, do sell personal lines insurance with the sort of marketing swagger that, that really doesn't encourage us to look at much more than the price. And no one ever says, of course, there's a high possibility of you having a flood or bushfire come through where you're choosing to live. So you'll have to be prepared to lose your home and all your possessions and endure months and months of misery and uncertainty. Sign here. Oh, well, you've sold me. And on the property, where can I buy that? <laughs> well, Industry Stalwart's 360 Underwriting Solutions have appointed an Australian CEO, Benice, and he's someone we know pretty well. Yes, uh, it's Jason Clark from QB. So Insurance News did a breaker last week about his move to 360 Underwriting Solutions. He will start on November 1st as CEO Australia. So at QBE, he focused mainly on uh, he focused on commercial lines and intermediary distribution. 
And since March, um, we did a story that he has been working with the group CEO, Andrew Horton, Horton on the establishment of a global distribution function. So when he moves to 360, he will be tasked with growing the business, which currently writes in excess of 350 million in gross return premium or GWP. Um, 360 says Jason has a tremendous skill set and deep broker relationships. Um, assets that 360 says will add to the growth of the agency's business. Yeah. Well, Terry, how do you see 360's progress? I was thinking about that just before, and I'm—I mean, I hate to say it, but but you know, it has it has some of the the hallmarks of Elon Musk about it, in that it's it's spectacular to watch. Um, they've only been around since 2017 when AUB sold 360 to Dennis Morrissey and Chris Lynch, who were executives at Allianz. And they grew the business carefully in competitive classes. They expanded into New Zealand and they hired some seriously talented people. Then in December 2020, AUB, which by then had a new MD and, and Mike Emmett, bought the whole damn thing back. Um, they restructured its underwriting agencies division and put 13 other agencies in a new division for Morrissey and Lynch to run as shareholders. Uh, brokers really like 360, and, and it has a lot of grunt these days, obviously. Mm. So the addition of a, of a key manager like Jason Clark to run the Australian operation does indicate they're not going to sit back and, and move more slowly. Well, Wendy, the premium funders now have their own code. What are they hoping to achieve with this? Well, yes, this is their first code of practice, um, and it comes into effect at the start of October. So it aims to drive um, higher standard, standards, and it's been uh, designed to align with other industry codes, particularly the new NEBA one. Um, so this code also emphasises transparency and disclosure in pricing and includes requirements around uh, providing assistance for vulnerable consumers and ensuring dispute procedures are in place. And they've also set a, a code compliance committee, which will be chaired by uh, Vicky Mullen, who is, uh, has experience as an AFCA ombudsman, and um, former uh, NEBA CEO Dallas Booth is also one of the members on that. Do you think this is a useful addition, Terry? Yeah, I, I think so. Anything that adds to clarity around the, the financial aspects of buying insurance cover and, and formalises what customers have a right to expect is is good. There's quite a few of these codes drifting around the industry now, and, and we've seen all the controversy over the broker's code, etc. Um, I, I do wonder if the day will come when all these codes will get placed under one authority in the insurance industry and uh, will therefore become a, a much more significant power. Let's wait and see. Well, the latest APRA industry statistics are out, Bernice. What are the trends that you're seeing? Oh, yes. Uh, some key stats stood out. Um, gross incurred claims went up um, by some 6% to $45.2 billion. Uh, and that has to do a lot with the adverse weather events, including, of course, the New South Wales Queensland floods earlier this year. But more importantly, however, for the industry, gross earned premium increased at a bigger margin by 11% to 60.4 billion. Another most another obvious trend is what APRO describes as larger increases of rates in most product classes. 
and this explains why gross gross earned premium went up the way it did. So um, the rate hikes were most apparent in householders, domestic motor and fire industrial specialists or ISR. So the the rate hikes were critical for the industry after all the weather related catastrophes. So um, it's not just a torrent of claims pouring in, but also the claims inflation that's facing the industry. So with the rate hikes, the industry managed to uh, quadruple its underwriting profit to 6.3 billion in the 2021-22 financial year. And just very quickly, but if you look at net profit, the industry did not fare as well. It was just up 0.3% to 924 million. And that we can blame it on the investment returns because um, there's an unrealized loss of uh, about $2.8 billion, mainly on interest-bearing investments. Yep. Well, insurance are doing well to increase profits after the claims, claims inflation and uh, issues with investments, aren't they, Terry? I don't think a 0.3% increase in profit in an industry as large as this one is, is anything other than awful or even terrible. Still positive. <laughs> I thought Bernice's report was very positive, but it left me feeling very negative. Premium income's risen in personal lines for obvious reasons, but but huge weather-related claims and, and falling investment returns are bogging the insurers down. And a $924 million overall insurer profit does very little to offset all those losses from claims and investments of something like, I don't know, a gazillion dollars. And and no insurance company is going to survive for long if it keeps pulling in such paltry returns. Well, on that uplifting note, that brings us to the end of this week's Insight Podcast by Insurance News. Thank you once again to our panel, John Deeks, Wendy Pugh, Bernice Han and Terry McMullen. Enjoy your week and thank you all for listening. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at editor at insurancenews.com.au. We value your input. You can read all these stories and many others at your leisure at insurancenews.com.au. You can subscribe to the Insight Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Google, and all your favorite podcast platforms now. We look forward to catching up again next week. Hold up. 